As we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the 25th chapter of that wonderful book, but also, if you will, please, to the book of Hebrews, to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Genesis chapter 25, then, and Hebrews 12 as well. As was the case last week, wherein the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans taught us how to understand the word to Rebecca about the twins in her womb. So this week, Scripture itself gives us the application or an application of the text before us this morning concerning these same twins now in the crossroads of their lives where those roads met and then so terribly and eternally diverged at the site of Jacob's fire and pot of stew. Those same roads, by the way, have continued to meet and diverge, and they still do every day, over and over, where men and women, boys and girls meet and are given the same choice Esau faced that day, the things of God or a mess of pottage. We'll begin our reading at verse 27 of Genesis 25, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge again that it must be your spirit who illumines the word that he himself has inspired the day that it was written we thank you, Father, for speaking to us in your word, and we pray that he will open our hearts to receive marvelous things from your law. And also, our Father, that we may take warning and encouragement from your word this morning. Speak for your servants are listening, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 25, beginning at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. We have to imagine that this is hyperbole. This great hunter was not about to die, but it helps us to understand how lightly he held his birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That's a real struggle for students of the scripture to determine sometimes, especially in the case of narrative writing in the scripture, whether or not what the figure in that story, in that history, is doing should be considered noble or sinful. 
it falls sometimes to a judgment call. But the nature of Esau's actions here, however, uh, is not left merely to our judgment. And a rare occurrence of this, the narrator tells us outright, what we have witnessed is clearly evil. You caught that, thus Esau despised his birthright, leaving us in no doubt. But even if there were some doubt about Esau's character and behavior, particularly here, the writer of Hebrews removes it from us completely. Now in the book of Hebrews, this pastoral letter is written to a congregation of Christians who have sacrificed much to follow in the way of Christ. They have, in many instances, lost their own families, been disowned by the ones they love for their faith in Christ. But the pressure is mounting. These Christians, still young in the faith, are facing persecution too, probably from Rome. Now the reason those families disowned them is that they perceived them as traitors against the Jewish religion. And as Jewish Christians who had at one time lived under that distorted Jewish system of works for salvation as Judaism had become distorted by the time of Christ, they're now tempted to return to that, that religion in order to escape persecution. Their minds are tempted to think it an easy way out of the pressures that they're facing. Now it's in that context that these words come to encourage and to strengthen them from the 12th chapter of Hebrews, and we'll pick up at verse 12. 12 verse 12 in Hebrews, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Salvation is by grace alone. That is the biblical truth that blazed across our hearts and our minds last Lord's Day when God's Word came to us with power and with clarity while they were still in the womb before they could do anything good or bad. Jacob was chosen by God. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God's word cannot say it any more clearly. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion so that our salvation is completely, utterly by God's grace and by God's grace alone. A couple of you came up to me last week after worship and reminded me of the ridiculous nature of that saying so commonly in use among evangelicals today that God does his 99% and 
and now you must do your 1%. If that is the case, you reminded me, then we are hopelessly, eternally lost. We can do nothing to initiate or to contribute to our salvation, not even 1%. We're dead in our sins, and in the matter of salvation, completely dependent upon the God who has chosen us from before the world began. He must come to us, because in our sin we cannot go to Him. Even when we are brought before Him by His grace, the only thing we contribute to the transaction between us and Christ for our salvation is the sin from which we must be rescued. And all of that is true. Biblically, undeniably, irrefutably, gloriously true. Salvation is by grace, is by grace alone. If you left worship last week convinced that you cannot even raise a finger to bring about your salvation, then God's word found good soil in your heart for its seed. But isn't it just like the scripture then to put the other pole of truth immediately before us? In Romans, in the book of Romans, it is chapter 9, God's sovereign grace back to back with Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And our tortured minds cry out, so which is it? Is it by grace or it is by faith that we're saved? And the scripture answers, yes. Resoundingly, yes, it is by grace and it is by faith. It is both. Salvation is of the Lord. It is all of His grace and His grace alone. Yet without faith, no one can be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Charles Spurgeon, it is said, was, was challenged for his preaching, his convictions about the sovereignty of God on the one hand, how salvation is by grace, pure, unalloyed sovereign grace and about the responsibility of man on the other, how repentance and faith are necessary for salvation. And when challenged to explain how the two can be brought together, he simply answered, I don't try to reconcile friends. Here in Genesis, the Two poles come even closer, not in chapters back to back as in Romans 9 and 10, but in verses back to back. No sooner have we learned that God has chosen Jacob to be the son of promise and not Esau, and that apart from anything in them, then we get to see the other side of that same coin. It may be that God has chosen Jacob and not Esau, but even God's sovereign election 
does not work apart from means. It is when you understand these things, Christians, though you cannot fit them perfectly together in your mind, it is when you understand that both are 100% true. God's sovereign election on the one hand and your unmitigated responsibility on the other. It is when you hold to both of these fully and without reservation, it is then that you are ready to think rightly and to live out rightly your salvation. We considered the sovereignty of God, how salvation is of grace and all of grace, not some agreement between us and God wherein God gives a certain percentage and we give a certain contribution back. That much we made perfectly clear. Today we see on the other side of the truth, the same truth that God's sovereign work of salvation works itself through means, that it is mediated in salvation through the responses and the thoughts and the words and the deeds of human beings through their faith. And even, on the other hand, through their unbelief. And you know who was who, or who was whom, in the passages we've read this morning, although it may not always seem clear from their lives to our view. Jacob is the one who enjoys the salvation of God because he embraces the salvation of God through faith while Esau misses out completely on that salvation that had been right in his grasp and yet did not capture his imagination, nor his interest, nor his allegiance at all. Well, a few verses back we heard that what fundamentally distinguished the one from the other was the sovereign choice of God. Now what we read is that the watershed between them boils down at the same time to the way they responded to God's covenant with them. Now you can imagine, can't you? Abraham, if you do the math, it did not die until 15 years after the birth of Jacob and Esau. You can imagine that he, he probably dandled those grandsons of his on his knee. That's how the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke sees it anyway. The old man spent hours telling his grandsons about the great things that the Lord had done in his life. How precious are the promises of God and must be not only to them but to their children and to their children after them. How God had promised to make of them a great nation and how he'd promised them the land from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt. And somehow it all captured the imagination and the interest of Jacob and his heart. But Esau's thoughts were elsewhere. Esau's thoughts were out in the wild, out on the hunt. He just wasn't all that interested in the promises of, 
of God about the future and the distant future. He was a boy of action. He was a boy who lived for the moment. And that we know, for he was the same as a man. Early on, he learned the praise of his father for the skills by which he brought the game home that Isaac so loved to eat. Quickly, he learned to measure life by the success of today's hunt, by the food on the table and in his stomach, one meal at a time. Promises? Covenant? Birthright? What were they to him? Eat, drink, and be merry. That was Esau's view. That was Esau's religion. Living for the moment. That was Esau's philosophy, his theology. Faith was for sissies. He lived hard and he lived fast. By the way, you may have noticed in that Hebrews passage that it seems as though Esau is being labeled sexually immoral. It's difficult to know exactly to what that refers. Rabbinical literature says that in a number of ways Esau was sexually immoral during his life, that he even had adulterous encounters while away from home. This much is certain from the Bible itself. He intermarried with the Canaanite women and so defiled the purity of the covenant line. And in that, in any number of ways, we find Esau acting in complete indifference to the covenant and its promises and blessings, not least in this very example, selling his birthright for, for a bowl of soup. Jacob, on the other hand, <laughs> Jacob is not exactly a paragon of virtue. From his very birth, clinging to Esau's heel, he'd been grasping for what belonged, by birth anyway, to Esau. He wanted the promises. He wanted the birthright, the blessing that would otherwise have fallen naturally to Esau. Now, he went about apprehending them in all the wrong ways. But at least, at least he wanted them. At least God's promises and, and God's blessing and, and God's salvation was important to Jacob. And however poorly he expressed it and exercised it, it was True faith. It was saving faith in the promises of God. And this was the difference in life between these two brothers. Esau hadn't any faith. He hadn't even the slightest interest in the things of God. Jacob's passion was for God's blessing. He wants it. He reaches for it. He pursues it. In all of this, Jacob really is a, is a very accurate picture of, of a, the true Christian. Christians remain very sinful. You and I still have shameful thoughts. 
still act in ways that cause even us to rise up and curse ourselves. And along for the day when we shall not only be free from sin, but actually be incapable of it. But even in all of that, Jacob and every Christian with him at the rock bottom of it all, they have faith. They value above all else the covenant and its blessings and its promises, and they want nothing less than that for themselves and for their children and for their children. Jacob and Esau's lives will continue to be the great illustration of this distinction between the saved and the lost. I mentioned that the roads intersected here at Jacob's fire and his pot of stew and then uh, diverged and that eternally. That's not to say, by the way, that Esau um, did not do some things that were nice, uh, even admirable, magnanimous. We all admire Esau when he not only doesn't obliterate his brother Jacob upon their encounter later on in his return to the land, but actually embraces Jacob and, and kisses him and weeps with gladness to see him. And we all know unbelievers who are, for the most part, it seems, loving people, even admirable people. But their lives also did diverge visibly because of what was in their hearts. Jacob valued God's covenant. Esau despised it and threw it away for a bowl of red stew that turned out to be nothing more than a bowl of lentils. Then, as we learn from the next chapter, Esau married two Hittite women, giving no thought at all to the continuance of God's covenant to the next generation. Jacob, on the other hand, chooses wives who will place the matters of faith and truth on the mantles of their home. Esau, we learn in chapter 32, went to live in Edom near Mount Seir, not because he had to, but because he wanted to was just another indication of the indifference with which he held God's promises, even the promised land. That land, you remember, was a very picture of heaven according to the scripture, and it was nothing special to him. Jacob, on the other hand, worked for years to be able to return to that land. And some Esau lives for the moment, for what he can get out of life, for the immediate, and for what the world counts important. Jacob, on the other hand, has his eye on God's covenant, on God's promises, on the promised seed, on the promised land, all of which indicates that Jacob had true faith, while Esau had none. We might say it even more clearly. Esau missed out on salvation for the simple reason that he did not pursue it, even when it was right in his grasp. 
Jacob received salvation because he pursued it by faith, even if it was a flawed and imperfect faith. It is not perfect faith that apprehends the kingdom of God. It is true faith. Without faith, without even imperfect faith, struggling faith, faith like a mustard seed even, there is no salvation. Now here's the thing. What was true in Jacob in Esau's day is just as true today. In fact, in some ways, Jacob and Esau are but a small picture of the church today. Like both of them, all those who are baptized and in the church today are in the covenant. In the formal sense, they are covenant members and descendants of God's covenant. Yet there are those members of the covenant today for whom the things of God are everything. Those for whom all of life hangs on the promises of God and nothing is more precious and important than the prospect of eternal life with God. And alas, there are also those in the covenant for whom the things of God are of very little interest at all. Indeed, there are those in this very sanctuary, this very sanctuary this morning, who, for whom the things of God hold very little interest, and who are captured by the trinkets and the baubles and the fads and the toys of dust, by the pleasures of the moment, by instant entertainment and gratification for whom even this very sermon is of very little or no interest. In fact, you've already tuned it out and you're waiting to hit the door with bated breath that you may return to the world. That is the great distinction between men and women boys and girls who will enjoy the blessings or suffer the curses of God's covenant forever. When it comes down to it, it will be you who must give answer to God for your faith or for your lack of faith, for your interest in or your disinterest and indifference to the things of God. And there will come a day when that distinction will be most clearly to be seen. And I fear that that day will find some of you, I hope it is very few indeed, like that child in C.S. Lewis's illustration, a half-hearted creature fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered you, like an 
ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because you cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation by the sea. I know what you will miss out on, both in this life and in the life to come. Oh, the path of unbelief, it will have been an easier one, an easier road to be sure. And even more pleasurable in some ways, as the world measures pleasure. But that will be all there is of ease and pleasure. You will have had all you can get when you get all the world can give. And then it will be gone and forever, forever, you will rue the day that you exchanged your birthright for the instant pleasures of the world, for the stew, the, the red stew that will turn out in your mouth to be nothing more than some lentils, quickly consumed, gobbled down, and just as quickly gone. Oh, but you say, ah, I'll come eventually to take hold of my birthright. Only I, I want to enjoy what the world has right now. I'll believe later on. I'll believe tomorrow. Esau didn't think he was losing much either, did he? So what? Take my birthright. I'm hungry. No big deal. But then when the blessing went to Jacob, Esau sodded with tears. Bless me too, he begged his father. But the blessing was gone. It was too late. And even though he sodded with tears, tears no doubt not of faith, for he had lost every bit of that, but of unrepentant regret for what he had let go in favor of the trinkets and the, and the passing pleasures of earth, it was gone. Esau and Jacob stand to this day as a great warning and as a great encouragement. First, there's the warning of unbelief. The, the book of Hebrews makes that perfectly clear. The last thing you want to do is to lose your soul and heaven for the things of earth. And on the other hand, there is nothing that you would rather do, especially as you look back from that day and place not nearly so distant from you today as you might like to imagine. When you look back to see yourself straining to look ahead like Jacob, straining to see that city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Christian, hold on to your birthright and do not let it go. And when you find yourself like Pilgrim did in the streets of Vanity Fair, in Bunyan's classic, and the merchandisers call upon you to buy, buy, buy. You look 
upwards, like Pilgrim did, to signify that your trade and your business is in heaven. And putting your fingers in your ears, you cry, turn my eyes away from worthless things. And then when they mockingly ask you what you intend to buy, you tell them we buy the truth. And then you continue in your journey. For that is what it means to live by faith. And that, Christians, is the surest no. That is the only way to glory. By faith alone. Amen.